Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is The Ziggler Show, where our goal is to inspire your true performance. In this episode, how much do we really need love and affection? I mean, love and affection, I think we would all say has value, but how much and in what way and why? How important is it? What place does it have in our home, our work, and in all our relationships? Well, Zig Ziglar brings us a short message on this issue, and then I posted these questions to the Ziglar Show audience. In your home and close relationships, how do you communicate love and affection and how often and how important do you believe it is? Well, as responses started to come in, I quickly posted a follow-up question as well and asked this, who experienced a lack of love and affection in their upbringing or marriage and how has it affected you or how are you dealing with it? Well, Tom Ziegler and I went through as many of the comments as we could, and there were about an equal amount on both sides, very profound, very intimate and vulnerable. And I think you're going to get some incredible insights into this issue and what you can do to better fulfill it in your life. I'm going to share Zig's message with you first. Then Tom and I will talk through your comments right after I share some great products and services with you. All right, Tom. Well, like I said, you know, I did this two-part question. Um, I'll go ahead and start off with the, the initial question I posted in your home and close relationships. How do you communicate love and affection and how often and how important do you believe it is? So I'll just jump in and uh, we can share our own stories as we feel led. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Brandon Russell, he says, this is such a hard one. I personally would communicate love and affection every chance I had. I'm very big on kiss goodbyes and kiss goodnights and good morning and so on. Saying I love you when leaving or arriving, making sure the touch is important and what is said is genuine. But when it's done too much, I think it loses its importance. It's a very thin line between too much and not enough. And I've learned it also depends on the person and what their love language is and it matches and if it matches uh, your own. And I actually said, hey, great commentary that we'll use. Thanks, uh, Brandon. He said... Um, let me know which episode this is. I listen to, to you guys every chance I get. And this is an, a very, a very important subject and something I will discuss with my single dads. Uh, and I actually didn't click through, but he referenced another guy. I think they have a podcast maybe, uh, possibly to, uh, to single dads. And, you know, gosh, that's the story we started off the top of the show with is Zig talking about a single mother. And I think that's probably, you know, of course, an acute issue there. Cause obviously in a broken home, you would assume it's not fair to make it a broad statement, but there's probably some issues with love and affection going on. Yeah. You know, I think it's, I, I kind of like, uh, just pointing out, you know, can you do it too much? Yeah. Um, and you know, it, 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 the way our house was growing up is anytime you were reconnecting with somebody, mm -hmm. there was, and I, you know what, I think it's just, uh, kind of that combination of love and respect and that idea of, Hey, I see you. Right. So there's, there's always the hug or, or the kiss. Uh, Hey, you know, but it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a greeting. I mean, you know, it was just part of who we were. Uh, but then the, the affection that I saw in our house uh, growing up and with that, it was just the holding hands and you know the the kidding and you know all the and by the way one of the things that was probably different in our house and other houses as far as the kidding 
is it was never at the expense of someone else. Yeah. Okay. And so I want to make that clear that, you know, there was never jokes made or, or things said where, you know, we were making fun of or laughing someone else. It was just, just good humor, you know, and, and, uh, stories. And so that was, that was that. The, the thing that I would say, though, that probably is the differentiator between too much and insincere versus the right way is there was always intentional moments mm-hmm. that our family would have where it was just one-on-one. So the greeting and the hug and the holding hands, that would all happen, and then all of a sudden mom or dad would say, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Hmm. <laughs> you know, and it was just that one-on-one, uh, time of, of affection and appreciation. Well, man, I, I appreciate that, uh, statement and I'll admit that's what I'll never forget when we had three kids and me saying, I don't know if I want to have any more. Cause I don't know if I can have that, you know, as much one-on-one time and investment in, in more kids than that. And, uh, you know, now nine, uh, however many kids later, uh, six kids later after that nine, and it's absolutely true. I mean, it is very difficult for me to take the time, uh, one-on-one and there's pros and cons. There's, you know, there's other benefits that they get with the big family. And that is one that, um, I'm sure, you know, my kids would say and, and do that. Yeah. It's, it's not a lot, not as much one-on-one of course, as it could be. So that's one that I, I don't have a reconciliation on again, pros and cons, but that's, I know it's special, uh, when they do get that one-on-one what you know you talked about that i see you and the word that came to me was acknowledgement acknowledging somebody's there you know what uh, somebody else said something i'm gonna i'll, I'll get to it uh during theirs here's an, another one though tom jessica moyer she says uh, each day i take every opportunity to tell my family and close friends i love them and i'm a big hugger which we're going to hear a thread of here it is crucial to have a physical touch as part of my world i tell those i love that i love them and at the end of every conversation as you never know if this is your last opportunity and uh, it's interesting to see this now she is a and I, I mean i don't know her personally i know her through facebook and we've talked some there she's a, a fitness uh, instructor. I don't know if that's how she labeled herself, but she and her husband opened a, a storefront. It was it like a kind of a warehouse that they redoed. It's called the ice house wellness and community. It's in Wyoming, Delaware. And I have seen just, man, her, uh, expression and love. She exerts out everywhere and expresses out everywhere. And I saw recently events that she had special events just sold out. So it's really neat to see the fruition, obviously of her care of people and the affection that people have. And what we're seeing there in light of that, she's talking about the ice house, but I've read a lot lately about some of these online, um, more than communities, but where they have a, a shared interest like this, even like Peloton, the, you know, the bike and a uh, treadmill uh, community where they come together in their home, you know, remotely, but to, to do that. And the guy who uh, talked about, or the uh, founder of, of Peloton shared that we know that culturally there's, there's not as many people going to church 
but he said they still want to be part of a community. They still want to belong. They still want love and affection. And it may not be the best place, but they're doing it at Peloton, which is one of the reasons that they're growing so much. And I think that is why we see that. And we see events when you find somebody who's giving that freely, who's pouring out of a full cup, I think, of love and affection. Man, it draws people because of the lack that we seem to have, which we'll talk about here in a little bit as we go through some people who talk about uh, the consequences or the realities of not having that in their lives. Yep. And a shout out to Jessica. She's coming through our Ziegler oh, that's, certification. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Totally. Yeah. And uh, boy, you know, mom's nickname was the happy hugger. Uh. And uh, dad used to say, if it was moving, mom would stop it and hug it. And if it wasn't moving, she'd dust it off and sell it. <laughs> and there's, there's actually, I think there's a number. I, I can't remember if it's five or seven or whatever of how many hugs a day we, we need just to stay even. Hmm. We all need that hug. Yeah. Um, now in today's uh, world, gosh, you know, got to be careful who we hug. Uh, mm-hmm. right. And so like when we, when people come to our office, uh, <laughs> we, you know, and it could be, you don't know the culture they're coming from. You don't mm-hmm. know the life experience they've had. Uh, unfortunately, uh, hugging can be done wrong and taken wrong. Um, and so we let people know up front that we're huggers mm-hmm. when people come into our office and, but then we let them come to us. <laughs> right? I, and I'd have to say, I attest to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we are huggers. Uh, and we'll have people who were like, no, I'll pass on that hug. And by the third day, they're like, where's my hug? <laughs> so. That, that is great. Boy, I'll, I'll, you know, I grew up in, in a home with lots of acknowledgement and, 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 and hugs like that, but I was really impacted as a youth. I think I was 18, 19, starting to race bikes and kind of had a guy who was a mentor and he's kind of a hippie guy, but man, he was, he loved people and hugged on them. And I just, he just expected that and he did it to everybody. And I just realized the, the power of that, the connection of that. And that became my journey, a uh, lifetime as a hugger. Yeah. I don't, I didn't mean to hit on that point either, but you bring it up. I am more sensitive today, um, admittedly, because we're in a, uh, a culture that probably needs it more, but there's tension with it sometimes. So I think we all have to deal with that. Of course, that's, you know, generally outside the home. Well, speaking of the home here, Kathy Bo- uh, Bosley, she says, I love to write. So I have written notes to my kids over the years, especially the morning of the first day of school, or if I'm going out of town, I always try to mention something. I see them doing a character quality and let them know. I see it in them. And of course, how much I love them Uh, with the two older kids. I found myself doing that more through texting also. Uh, and I appreciated that just that, you know, there's a lot of good and bad about being on screens and stuff, but I definitely, benefit from texting. I've got older kids now who are not at home, just like you, they're not always at home and boy, I can take that. Sometimes I'll schedule it out there, but usually it's just, it just, it comes up, you know, a few times a week I'll think of them and I'll do that. Send a quick text and just thinking about you, hoping you're doing well. Just want you to know how proud I am of you for X, Y, Z. And I think, I think to one aspect, my kids, they, they come to expect that. You know, it's not out of the blue. It doesn't rock their world, but it's just a part of that continued connection uh, that I see them so grateful for. Yep. You know, writing the notes, the intentionality of that is mm-hmm. powerful. 
Um, and I talk about this in the book, Choose to Win, but uh, one of the guys I work with, Tyson Murphy, he has a blended family. And so he started writing notes to his kids. And it was, you know, at first they were like, what's wrong with dad? And then within three weeks, uh, he said that they would just kind of wait around before school to get their note. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it might see, it's, it's like, uh, gosh, you know, if, if you, if you grew up in a family where they didn't say, I love you, God, the first one to say, I love you. It's so hard. Yeah. Right. But then you break that ice. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what happened in the family. You know, now the notes are part of the legacy of that family. That's beautiful. And Tom, I didn't have the thought of that for this show, but it reminds me as a kid, uh, I generally took my lunch. I think my parents wanted me to have a healthier meal than what they had at the school. So I take my lunch and I remember in middle school specifically, I mean, it happened all along, but I, here's my lunch that mom made inside was a napkin folded over. You open it up and there was a note every day. Uh, there was a note to me. So think about this as middle school, middle school boys. And think about the peer pressure and the teasing and the whatever that went on. Uh, my guys knew uh, that it was in there and they would generally grab it right out of there to read it. Uh, and at first it became ribbing and then it just became, they wanted to see it. And, and looking back in retrospect, I think that it was, it was powerful to them, especially some of them who came from homes where they did not get that. Now, granted, I was, I was, uh, a bigger kid at that time. Uh, believe it or not, I was, I was usually big for my size. I was fast and athletic. So I, I didn't have a lot of peer pressure problems. I could see some other kids saying that was really embarrassing. So granted it was not for me, but man, it just, uh, I knew I, it was, it's like the attachment, you know, aspect. I, I knew I was loved. Uh, I got it every day. Um, Crystal Zane here. She says, I grew up in a home where we hugged our parents every night before bed. As we said, good night, always said, I love you when leaving home or hanging up a call as adults, we hug our child parents and siblings and nieces and nephews after a day together or after, uh, we part after meeting up for dinner, my husband and I raised our daughter the same way. This is normal in our family. We hug our friends when we meet up with them for dinner or see them at an event. We just hug. I tell my family and my close friends that I love them when I talk to them while saying goodbye. If that is ever the last time I see someone, I want them to know I love them. So, you know, with the second time or so we've heard about kind of the intentionality in the family. Did you and... Uh, your wife, I mean, did you, did you do any of that, set that up in your family intentionally? Like say, Hey, we're going to be a family that does that. Or is it just, you kind of brought what you did from your upbringing in, and maybe she did from hers and it just started that automatically. It was it pretty much just woven in. It, there wasn't like this intentional, uh, Hey, this is how we're going to do it. Now, my wife is from Mexico, Hispanic. And, and I have to tell you, um, I'm a little jealous of Hispanics in general for the, for the family uh, connections they have, yeah. uh, you know, just the, the love and, and uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but there just seems to, to be that. I'll tell you this talking about intentionality. Um, when I first got to know Bob Bodine, who wrote the power of who in two chairs, uh, the power of who had, had only been out a little while. And I read it, and what it said was, is that men never claim their friends. They never tell their best friends, hey, I love you. Oh, wow. 
And so, gosh, this was like 10 years ago. I, I took, a, I bought a dozen of those books and I wrote a note to my 12 friends. Now, just so everybody doesn't think it's weird that I have like 12 very, very best friends. I don't, I had two or three really, really close friends. And then the next three or four were kind of on the outer layer of that. And then the next three or four until we got to 12 distance and all that, it kind of separated us. Uh, but I wrote a personal note in there, told them I was claiming them as my friend and that I loved them. And it totally changed my life. It totally changed those relationships and especially for men. So if you're, if you're out there thinking, you know, gosh, you know, what should I do or how could I go about doing it? The power of who is a great book that, that kind of does that. And it really wasn't meant. The book was, uh, the, the, I think the subtitle of the book is you already know everybody you need to know. And Bob is a high powered business guy and he had spent, you know, he was traveling, you know, a couple hundred thousand miles a year networking. And then he realized that of all the thousands of people he made it a point to connect with every year, there was less than a hundred of them that he actually did business with. Yeah. And so he realized, wait a second, it's about relationship. Yeah. And the problem is, is we don't claim our relationships. And so it was kind of awkward saying, Hey, Kevin, I love you in the beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, man, when I have a good conversation with somebody, I love to finish it that way because it's the way I feel. And why would I rob somebody of that? And you have done that to me. You've done it out of the blue, um, just on a, uh, any old day for whatever reason prompted you. And I have been the beneficiary of that. I've got uh, the power of who right here with a note from Bob. And I have two chairs with a note, if you even remember, from you and from Bob. And, uh, and folks, if you have not heard those shows, if you just type in a search engine, uh, Bob Bodine, and it's spelled B-E-A-U-D-I-N-E, -E, uh, Bob Bodine, The Ziggler Show, he's been on twice. I think both times you and I uh, did the, the, the talk with him together. And so powerful. I've heard so many. It almost feels like, a, not that it hasn't you know, sold mainstream, it has, but from an underground level, I know my dad, Dan Miller, talked about that, the two chairs. He felt like it was this underground movement amongst leaders who were getting this book and being influenced by it. Well, that's, that's convicting because, uh, yeah, not a lot of guys, myself included, say that. We give respect in the manly ways, but to uh, give the authenticity about, hey, Tom, I love you, brother. <laughs> I love you too, man. Thank you. You are listening to The Ziggler Show, and our topic is the value of communicating love and affection. Next, we discuss the profound aspect in all of this of simply acknowledging others, as you'll hear Tom reference of saying, hey, I see you. So we're going to continue right after I share some great products and services with you. Okay, here, you <laughs> talked about your wife and uh, the culture. Barb Goni here, she says, I'm not sure if this is a Spanish thing or just a family thing, but we kiss each other every morning when we wake up, when we go out, when we get back, and before we go to bed as standard practice. 
Then the love between family members is also expressed through a lot of physical contact. We're always touching each other, maybe a random hug, a squeeze on the arm or leg while watching TV, holding each other's arms while walking in the streets, etc. With friends, it's a bit similar, lots of kissing, touching, and smiling. And last but not least, we show love in the way we talk to each other, which is loving and supporting most of the time, but joking and teasing are also part of how we show love and affection. So there's, there's apparently your, your wife's not the only one. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there, you know, there's some others here that talk about just those. Yeah. Gosh, I could go on. You know, I do want to hit one more thing on the love languages, but, uh, back to what you said earlier at the start of, I see you that acknowledgement. I did grow up with that. Uh, you never left the home or came back in without being acknowledged. And I didn't know anything different than that. And when I witnessed it, which I did as a kid, even in other homes where, you know, mom or dad is leaving or they come home and it's just kind of, a, sometimes just nothing. They just entered the room and that's it. And sometimes say, Hey, Hey, how you doing? I just wasn't used to it. I'm used to an embrace and like, Hey, what's, you know, that, that connection. Uh, and that is what I, I brought in my wife and I brought into our home. And so now with, you know, tonight when I go home, There'll probably be, there may be seven kids there. I'm not sure tonight. Uh, and my wife, when I come home, I'll come into the, I, I enter into the mud room and there's a little window that goes into the kitchen. And the first thing I'll hear usually is my wife going, daddy's home. And a couple of the kids will come in and never know. Some of the little ones, some of the biggest, some of them may be upstairs and they didn't hear. But then when I come in, if somebody didn't recognize or see that I was there, they'll come in and hug me. And then, uh, uh, and then at some point, the ones that are upstairs, you know, it's going to happen where they never come into that presence without that. And it's always a hug. Some of the kids, we don't force it. It's, you know, they're, so they're different. Some of them are, uh, some of them are kiss as well. Even some of my, well, I have an older one. He just turned, let's see, what did he turn 15, man? He's a hugger and a kisser. He's an affectionate guy. Uh, his younger brother by 15 months went actually went through a time. I don't know what was going on totally. And he started doing just a side hug, just one hug, you know, just, or just one side kind of the man. <laughs> and then it changed Tom and it talked, somebody else talked about, you know, just kind of the consistency of doing it. I think that's where we get down here in a minute to those who didn't receive it and how she's trying to do it. No, even if it's not reciprocated. Um, but that son now is, uh, he's a full, he's a full hugger. And he went through that time. And I don't know now, now he, he will reach out to me sometimes to just come up and say, and, and give a hug and say, I love you. Um, it's just, I, it, to me, it's, it's that, yeah, that, that acknowledgement. And it's so odd when you're doing that to not have that. It's so honoring, I guess. I think we all want to be, we all want to be acknowledged, even to the point, sometimes I'll come in and it's, it's been a good day and I'd kind of just like to be anonymous for a minute, but you know, <laughs> I'm grateful. I do want to point one thing out though, that I'll never forget. Um, back, I don't know if you remember this, Tom, but when we talked with Michael Jr., we had him on the show. So he's a comedian, incredibly uh, successful comedian. And he talked about this and he says, you know, when you're, when you're, uh, you got little kids and you come home at the end of the day and he says, I love to come in the door and they'd come running daddy's home. And I'd get down on a knee and swoop them up. He says, well, then at some point they're teenagers, you know, and he, of course he's saying this with, with lots of, lots of funny and comedy and stuff. He says, they're teenagers and they're not quite, quite the same. But he says, you know what? I got all those years of them running to me. He says, now I do it to them when they come in the door he says i run to the door and greet them and bring them in i just thought that was beautiful i, I don't know why it touched me so much 
and I, I, I still haven't made it consistent. I forget about it. Uh, to that degree, but still when the kid comes home, even, you know, my older ones or whatever, they're going to come in and know they're going to get wrapped up by everybody. My little kids today, when they go to bed, they'll go through the room. Uh, Jay Daria, she's our youngest and it's okay. It's bedtime, honey, get ready for bed. She'll go get ready for bed, then come down and she'll go one by one through however many people are there. It's hardly ever less than five and it's often, often 10 and she'll go around to hugs. And a lot of times the big kids will just wrap her up. And, you know, she's kind of like the pet <laughs> and, and to the point where I'll go, guys, okay, just let her go. She's got to go to bed. It's, it's past that. It's an amazing, it's an amazing fruition. I think it's, you know, it's brain training. It's heart training. Yep. That's awesome. Well, real quick before we leave this and go in, and I do want to talk about some of the, the ones that, that talked about that they did, did not have that or uh, haven't had that. Uh, there's three people here who talked about. Uh, the love languages, Brian, he says, mine, the five love languages, which, uh, folks, if you don't know, that's one of the best selling books of all time. Literally. I just went blank. Who wrote it? Do you remember Tom? Uh, Chapman, Gary Chapman. Thank you. Um, five love languages. He says, mine is touch and words of affirmation, but we all need to learn to do this in a way that works great for the receiver. Uh, Trey says it starts with understanding your partner or friendship. My wife and I consistently had to work at making better relationships with each other. The difference between how she likes to receive love and affection is different from me. Once I understood that she feels most loved by physical touch, I had to make sure I paid attention to doing that. For me, I look for comments of appreciation and the physical touch is not a big deal to me. Uh, When we didn't understand our five love, our, our love languages, we would easily fall victim to our own mindset. Um, thoughts of they must be upset or they don't care for me, or maybe they don't love me, uh, is what they had to deal with after, uh, becoming angry after all becoming angry is a product of a victim mindset. Uh, Katarzyna, she also said the five love languages is so great to learn how to love those uh, close to me in the way they need to be loved. It's so extremely important. I love that point. I'm a huge fan, Tom, of the five love languages. We've gone through that with our kids, uh, before to understand that, you know, so it's, it's an interesting though, to put it in this frame because we're the love and affection so far, we've talked a lot about physical, about the hugs and about, you know, the words that go along with that as well. But I can hear some people say, you know, gosh, uh, touch is not number one for me. You know, it's not for me either, but gosh, it's, it's, uh, you could say that words aren't, but I think everybody needs to hear. I love you. You know, even if that's not your love language uh, or even the other person, it's still, relevant, but you know, to this, knowing your, your partner, your, 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 your spouse, your uh, kids and the people next to you, their love languages is huge because even after 20, I think we just said 26 years, my wife and I, she still will naturally tend to, oh, she wants to encourage me and she'll use words. Uh, Cause that's what encourages her. It's not for me, but I have to take that. And I know what she's doing. She is giving me love, even though it's not the way that I like it most. I, I like uh, focus. I think it's called focus time, uh, you know, attention. I tend to like that, but she likes words and yeah, I'll tend to give her attention and that's not her primary love language. It's words. She wants words. And so we still work with that. I do try to make room though, even in that of going, gosh, even if she's not giving it in my specific way, recognizing she is loving me. Yeah, and I think you touched on something and that is whatever love language we speak, like we like to hear or have, that's what we're going to give. Yeah, naturally. Right. Yeah. 
So, you know, if we like words of affirmation, that's what we're going to do for somebody else. And that's awesome, right? But the next level up is understanding what it is that the person you're with likes. Uh, and the, after, the five languages are words of affirmation, acts of service. Boy, that's my wife. Yeah. Uh, man, she does acts of service all the time. Receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Hmm. So you're a quality time guy. And I'm a, I'm a touch and affirmations person. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you can have more than one, uh, but when you know what the person you're around what like, uh, Alexandra is my daughter. She is a quality time. Yeah. Like, like sometimes you can just tell she wants to be the, the center of attention. Yeah. And nothing makes her happier than when she when she gets that. And it's and, it, and let me just say this: in her, def- it's not unbalanced. It's not weird. It's not crazy. It's just, you know what? If you want to change her day, she just needs to know that she's the only one around. Yeah. It's quality time. Yeah. Well, and nothing, I, nothing matters more. I would again encourage people to figure out your own and figure out those close to you, and and, uh, and you know, but also be self aware. Mine is quality time, and yet because of, I'm also an intro, uh, a pretty significant introvert. And so even though love is quality time, sometimes I, I don't want love from anybody. I, I don't want quality time from anybody. I just want to be alone. So we all, again, self-awareness is, is what helps so much for ourselves and, uh, and for others. Well, Tom, so let's go through a couple here and, and I don't want to be, and we talked about all these positives, but I want to connect with those who are not in a place of getting all those positives there. So I did do the follow-up question who experienced a lack of love and affection in their upbringing or marriage and how has it affected you or how are you dealing with it? So Don here, he says, my father and mother rarely expressed love to me and I felt I had to earn it by good grades, etc. They did provide well for me with nice clothes and a great place to grow up in the summer. They had a summer cottage in addition to our winter home. My father bought me a car for being a top student in high school. I had to learn from a friend much later in life to feel comfortable hugging. My parents didn't say I love you. I don't recall in the whole time he was alive, my father ever saying he loved me. He did take me on a couple business trips, one to Boston and the other to Washington, D.C. We went to a lot of the famous spots there. However, it was hurtful to never hear that I was loved. As a result... I was careful to tell my kids I loved them and I hugged them often. Um, you know, and right there, I mean, for however many people, and I don't really have a commentary specifically on this, Tom, I don't have stats, but you know, he could have very well, of course, just continued. Thank goodness that he was aware enough to go, Hey, here's what happened to me. It hurt me. I'm not going to do that with my kids. I'm going to turn a different direction for every one of Don. I think there's a lot more though, that they got that and they just continued that example on. I mean, you know, you know that that's statistically, I think the, the average. Yep. Well, you know, we, we pretty much behaved the way uh, we were treated in a lot of cases. Uh, And so well done, Don. You know, I've got a picture of dad and myself uh, towards the end of dad's life. We were walking away from the camera and we're holding hands. It's your Facebook profile. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I I was looking at that picture and I was thinking about it and, and I realized, okay, how did dad become the man who held hands? And the reason I said that is because his dad died when he was five. 
Right. Right. And so for, you know, for most of us, especially boys, their, their role models are dad. So dad lost his, right. He came from a big family and he had mentors and things like that. And, and so I wondered in my life, cause he was, he was the man that held hands everywhere. And so I started thinking, how did he become the man who held hands? Well, well I just want to jump in too, because to point out, because yeah, so his dad uh, is gone at the age of five and he's got a mom who's single mom to 11 at that time. He was the uh, 10th of 12, 10th of 12. And so his baby sister died a writer within a week of his dad dying. Right. So. So there's basically 11 kids. And how on earth did his mom have time to give individual love and affection? I mean, I wasn't there. Maybe you know, but it had to have been less than the norm regardless. Well, the Great Depression was in full swing. Uh, Dad started working when he was six. And, and, you know, the safety nets that we have today, they didn't have them. And, it was you know, everybody was pitching in and doing what they could. Um, But you know, he knew he was loved and and I think his mom gave him a great deal of love and affection. But I often wondered, you know, with that beginning and that tough circumstance. And then of course we see it all the time. That story is repeated every single day all across the world. And then how did dad become the man who automatically uh, held hands? That's just who he was. And I think it was, um, you know, I could just see him, you know, praying one day, before I was born or, you know, Lord, how do I become the best father and the best husband I can be? And so what he did is he made a commitment and his commitment was, especially after 1972, when he became a believer is he just said, you know what, I'm going to study it. I'm going to read every book on being the best dad, the best husband, how to have the best relationship. And I'm going to read God's word every day. And so it changed him. And so for those of us uh, who say, you know what, I want to become something different than I am right now, or I don't want to do what my parents did for me, right? Or I want to take it to the next level. My parents are great, but, you know, every, every one of us has a wound. So here's the good news. You can change it. Yeah. You can start today learning and reading and becoming the person who automatically gives hugs, who holds hands, who says, I love you, who does the little things. And it's really starts with what we read, mm-hmm. what we listen to, who we associate with the belief that we have. Um, and I would say it's never too late. Well, and it makes me think Tom of there's a lot of folks hearing that, that aren't in that place that are, that would like to start that. It's going to take some courage. Uh, it's the best word I can think of. Uh, and I understand that because there's been times when, yeah, you're wounded in a relationship or there's distance or whatever. And man, that, that call right there to start picking up love and affection is, is difficult, is threatening. Um, so just want to acknowledge that. And it's going to take some courage and some deep breaths. And I don't know any better way to though than to go to, go to our maker and look for that uh, flow through. Say, hey, I can't do this, but you can do it through me. Jen Underwood. I know Jen from a long time ago. I know some of her story. She says, I'm working at this with my kids. Huge lack of it in my marriage, uh, which ended. 
And I'm working on it differently in my current relationships, more from a perspective of of continuing to offer it, even if it isn't reciprocated. I used to stop trying when the rejection was continual. It used to be a big part of me to be a hugger. I am relearning because I missed that part of me. That's difficult. And I, I, uh, yeah, she had a marriage that, that ended and, um, boy, a lot of, a lot of hardship there. Again, like the clip that we heard from Zig to begin with, she's now a single mom with kids. It's a lot to put on, uh, one parent and, uh, but yeah, she has the power. Thank goodness. She recognizes that to make that choice and continue that legacy. Kevin, have we had Dr. Carolyn Leaf on the show? No, I actually went to her page one time and didn't follow through and requesting it. But based on you continually talking about her, like you are again, I, I know she's someone that we need to have on. Yeah. Uh, she's going to be speaking at one of our conferences coming up in May. Um, but I've read two of her books recently and it's in, it's really about renewing the mind, training your brain, uh, and how you can do it. And this is, you know, for, for people who've been wounded and hurt, um, there's a couple of things that, that we need to recognize when usually what we do when we get hurt is we, is we bury it, right? We, we put on a, we put on a mask or we get very performance oriented and we try to earn everybody's love and respect. Uh, and that'll work okay for a time. And then life happens and it reveals itself again. And we got to deal with it all over again. And one of the things I learned from her is that when we, when it comes out again, if you're, if you're doing a brain scan on somebody, the brain will light up just as intensely around that hurt as when the hurt happened the first time. Hmm. And so we can never downplay the fact that, you know, even though it happened so long ago, the hurt's still there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now in, in Romans, it talks about renewing the mind. Mm-hmm. And here's what's interesting is we can actually rebuild and recreate our memories. And so when we've got a hurt in there, what our job is, is to renew our mind. And so here's just a couple of things. And we really need to let her talk about this because this is big. Yeah, let's do it. Neuroscience and psychology and everything else. But what happens is, is when we have a hurt, we have all these associations with it, you know? So when we get hurt, our brain starts checking through all the associations and that intensifies it and makes it worse. So what we've got to do is we've got to create new associations with it. Hmm. So here's an example. Um, you know, Oh man, they really hurt me. So here's a question. Was it really about you? Well, let's be honest. It wasn't about you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything for it. It was their problem, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. They didn't know how, uh, maybe they were abused as well. Maybe whatever happened. And so that can start to dissolve your guilt. It's not about me. It was never about me. It's their problem. It's not my problem. Okay. So a second question we can ask is, man, that was hard. I would never want to do that again. What did I learn from it? Is there anything good that came out of it? And then you think, wait a second, I was talking to a friend last week and I was able to, to help him through a tough situation because I understood. 
and you see immediately we've created two new associations right there what's it's not about me it's about them right and wait i did learn something good i was able to help a friend and so now when that memory comes back and as long as i dwell on the the positive things that did come out of it even though i never want to go through it again what i learned and the empathy i now have and 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 the credibility it gives me helping somebody in that situation the 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 hurt the feeling the intensity of it has changed but we have to be intentional about it. We have to, we have to really go in there and do it. And really when I look at my dad and I look at the hardship that he went through in the first part of his life, and then it wasn't right. You know, everybody thinks it's roses the whole time, but it wasn't. I mean, he lost a daughter, lost a sister. Uh, the business struggled. He had some real setbacks, health crisis, you know, I mean, all these things really, but I could see his thinking and I could literally watch him process it and think, I don't understand this, but God, I know you got a plan for it. And the next thing I know, we'd get a letter with somebody saying that their life was changed because of what he shared with them in his own story. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing to do because it's got to be intentional. Yeah. And so why do we do it? Well, we do it because, man, we love our kids right? We do it because we should love ourselves. Yes. Right. That's where I was going with it. Shanti <laughs> Feldhahn one-on-one there. It benefits us most. I know. And so as hard as it is, uh, man, to bury it or to ignore it, and you're just asking for it. Yeah. What we've got to do, it's almost that verse that says, uh, what the evil one meant for harm, he meant for good. And we have beliefs in us and our, our beliefs either keep us from or allow us to. And so when you've been hurt and your whole mindset is, man, that's keeping me from something, then it's just a downward spiral. But if you start recreating that into this allows me to, right? <laughs> this allows me to notice when my son is really going through a hard time. This allows me to minister to somebody over here. This allows me to know that I've got more internal strength and fortitude than anybody I know. And so I'm going to get through this just like I got through that. Right. But it's how you look at it. That's going to make the difference. We need to get her on. Yeah. She's, she's good. I I, absolutely. And that line you just gave Tom is one of the most golden lines I've heard in a while beliefs our beliefs keep us from or allow us to that's one of the best filters I've ever heard thank you I, I'm ready to go now I got all I need so think about this Kevin uh, who's telling us this keeps you from me and who's telling us this allows me to me yeah Goodness. And okay. There's a, that's a, there's another show right there. Or is that from her? Is that from, or that's you, probably my twist on it. Is it? Okay. I simplify I like everything. Well, you need but to yeah. make a meme out of that one. Yeah. Or a t-shirt. So what the evil one meant for harm, he meant for good. Yeah. What the evil one said you can't do. He said you can. Mm-hmm. You know what? That line's going to be good for this guy. Listen to this. Thomas Zelensky. He just responded. Oh man. And in, in parentheses tears. 
that is exactly where I'm at right now. Uh, it is dealing with the lack of, he didn't have this. And I actually asked on Facebook, I said, are you willing to share more? And he says, no, at least not here. He says to be hurting from this is the first step of healing. That was it. That's, uh, what I am grateful for is people's vulnerability on Facebook, you know, to share, uh, real life issues with these topics. Yeah. But, uh, I, I know Thomas a little bit and he is valiantly striving to change his life, to turn his life around, to take yeah beliefs and experience that's been keeping him from things and let those help him, uh, allow him to do what he wants to do. You know, it, it's golly, we always think that, um, you know, nobody has it worse than us. Mm -hmm. And then when we get to know people, it's like, man, I'm glad I didn't have that story. Yeah. I was speaking up in Seattle and, and a man in tears in his sixties came to me. He said, is there hope for me? I said, what do you mean? And it was around this subject. And he said, when I was born, I was born on a farm in rural Canada and it was two o'clock in the morning and my mom gave birth and my older sister wrapped me up in swaddling clothes and it was below freezing outside. And she walked from the farmhouse to the barn where my dad was up taking care of the animals. And my sister said to my dad, look, you have a son. And he said, my dad's first words were, get that piece of garbage out of here. Wow. Wow. <laughs> And I just sat there, you know, with just heartbreaking because number one, what, what kind of dad thinks that What kind of human thinks that Yeah, I know. And number two is who told him that his dad said that, mm -hmm. right? It's gotta be the sister. And so you've got this really sick, uh, just desolate. It's like a desert. It's like a barren environment, uh, depriving what people need to know the best. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you, how do you, you know, he survived it, right? Cause he's in his sixties now, but how do you move from survival to thriving? And I think it, I think it goes back to that, that, you know, that principle. Well, there's three things that I've learned and that is we got to choose our input. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you don't have that choice, mm -hmm. right? Man, we get wounds that we have no choice around. Number two is we got to guard our mind against the wrong input. In other words, if somebody comes to you with something that's not true, that's not uplifting, that's, you got to, it's not, you, you say, that's you, that's not me, right? You got to have that. And the third one is you got to train your mind. And that's what Dr. Carolyn Leaf really gets into is and this is where most people stop you know most if you talk to somebody who's kind of what i call a mature christian there are or somebody who's a mature human being philosophically and emotionally they're usually really good at choosing what comes in mm -hmm. they're usually pretty good at, re, at deflecting and guarding against the things that come to them like they don't accept it but they're usually pretty weak on training their mind yeah right because yep. we can re we can train our mind, we can renew our mind, we can we can get it to think in the ways that are going to benefit us, but it's work. It is. It's, it's our propensity to do that physically is so common to us, even if we don't do it, but we understand the concept. You go work out, you exercise, you 
train your body, you stress it in a good way. And yet with our minds, it's just not much of the culture, especially after school. We know that statistically that after school, high school, college, that is often the end of learning. You may experience things, do some on the job learning, but of actually uh, training your brain, uh, giving that good stress to your brain, growing that muscle. Yeah, it's very Dr. Dr. Leaf says that we're all neuroplastic surgeons. Yeah, that's great. And what she means is, is that it's been proven that negative input, uh, hurtful words and, and beliefs cause brain damage. They can actually see the structure of the brain and the way the brain lights up change. And then we can go in and we can reprogram our brain and we can actually see the brain healing, right? We can actually structurally see changes in it. And so that means that we all have neuroplasticity that's the the malleability of the brain and how it works we are all brain surgeons because we can all change the structure of our brain just by what we choose to think on and allow into our brain and there's a lot of hope in that it's dramatic amount of hope again going back to working out we all know that we can change you know the size of our waist and uh the size of our bicep but that, if you want to go look more on what Tom just said, look up neuroplasticity, and it's something that uh, we're seeing more and more on. Thank goodness. Uh, you know, on what you talked about, the story you told, here's one that's not far off. Well, John Hoffman, she says, a huge lack of it, of, of positive uh, love and affection in my upbringing, 12 siblings, and no hugs nor I love yous from either of my parents every kind of abuse with all 12 of us. Her first, my first marriage, she says, physically abusive. My second marriage, verbally abusive. With all three of my kids from both marriages, I swore I would do the opposite, and I did. I always have hugged my children and said I love you from the beginning. Uh, with adults, I'm getting better. I'm single now for 10 years, but in a new relationship, and I'm getting better with the affection, uh, being that he does more of it than I do. It's definitely a learning process all over again. And hopefully with, with respect and, and love, I, I want to point out there what she mentions there, that she grew up, no hugs, no I loves you, I, I, loves you, I love you, and married somebody, I would say in that standpoint, it would look like she continued at that point, she continued in that same vein and she married somebody of that same propensity. Uh, and there was physical abuse and then did it again with somebody with verbal abuse. And it sounds like now 10 years later and a lot of healing, she's finally going a different way. But that reality, like you talked about Tom of our propensity to most people in that hard environment will continue it. It's all we know, or it's what's comfortable. There's the kind of the beaten wife syndrome where we go back to what's comfortable or the beaten child, even though we know it's bad and that's the human nature and talk about a, you know, a massive shift. I mean, this is back to your brain training. This is, this is, you've been brainwashed. We've all been brainwashed and these people specifically had a hard brainwash and they have to be re brainwashed. Right. And just a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, that's why that statement, it had nothing to do with me is so important because later on in life, what happens is our self image is so damaged that we will accept being treated horribly because, Hey, nobody's going to love, nobody else is going to love me because mm-hmm. look how bad I am. Yeah. 
right? But when you realize, wait a second, the, the abuse, whatever kind it was, the, the wounds, it had nothing to do with you, it was them, then wait a second, it had nothing to do with me, then maybe I am worthy, right? Yeah. I didn't deserve that. Yeah. And we're all worthy. We're, you know, we're children of God. The other thing is the whole, uh, you talk about propensity, mm-hmm. uh, quantum mechanics. They're actually, they actually now think that our thoughts and what, how we think changes our DNA. Hmm. And we actually pass that propensity on generationally. I believe it. And so, and that's a crazy thing. So our thinking and our beliefs actually impact our, our, our great grandkids. Yeah. Now here's a great news propensity is not certainty. Yes. Okay. And that's Newtonian. Newtonian uh, physics and Western medicine is based largely around um, genetics and your DNA. And it says, Hey, this is the way you're wired. (laughs) Deal with it. There's nothing you can do. Right. But now we know the way we think, what we eat, the environment we're in, all of these things will either, uh, help us remain healthy or increase the likelihood of us becoming unhealthy or sick. Yeah. Right. And so even though we might have a propensity to something, we can create the right habits that overcome that. I I just looked up like you, I love words propensity. It says an inclination or natural tendency to behave in a particular way. That is the, the majority of genetics from a, a medical standpoint. That's the majority. I have a, uh, a daughter, a young daughter, um, and she was uh, born into and initially raised uh, native in a Native American reservation. She has a dramatic uh, propensity, inclination, natural tendency towards diabetes um, and struggles a lot with uh, sugar, carbohydrates, whatever. We are obviously giving her a lifestyle that does not include that. She's going to have a harder time than any of my other kids uh, in that arena, you know, nutritionally because of that. That's her propensity. But like you said, and thank you for that, it is absolutely not her certainty. Um, well, so we just talked about, so that Jonna uh, just shared. So she grew up with this uh, abuse and negativity, lack of love and affection. And it looks like initially continued on into that after, after leaving the home. Well, here's one, Jennifer Meisel. And again, I appreciate the, uh, vulnerability, uh, that, that people are willing to have here on Facebook. I knew Jennifer as a kid, grew up in the same small town. I knew her parents. Uh, and she says, I grew up with such a loving family and friends. I guess I took it for granted that most people showed love and affection freely and openly. Now, I knew her parents. I knew her dad, one of the most loving men I've ever known. She says, goes on, it's a mystery why after so after many wonderful boyfriends, I chose to finally marry someone who was the meanest person verbally I've ever met. It shattered my trust in men and in myself for years after our divorce. I shut down emotionally. I stopped being able to cry. I slept all the time and I let myself go physically. It's unfortunate that out of all my good experiences, it only took one bad person to shake my foundation. I'm much better now, but I'm mad that I wasted all those years because of one bad apple. To me, Tom, that's profound especially coming off of what we just talked about, a propensity. Jennifer, unlike who just shared before her, Jonna, did not grow up uh, 
have and can't coming out of home with a propensity for that. Jonna did, Jennifer didn't, and yet they both married abusive men. So uh, I appreciate that just for the aspect. I think we all try to discern our own stuff and have a, a ju- and justify it. Um, I think we just blew away a little bit of justification on there of, of why, and even trying to figure it out. And it, although I appreciate the look that we, uh, the efforts that people are going to, to understand their genetics, I think it's good to understand our propensities, but I think a lot of people do that in order to justify things that are they're, that they're doing and they're continuing on and back to what you said, uh, to let their, to allow their beliefs to keep them from X, Y, Z instead of saying, Hey, that, you know, that propensity may be there. I'm not going to let it keep me from something. I'm going to let it allow me to do something, or I'm just going to go forward and do what I know is best anyways. Yeah. You know, Kevin, somebody asked me one time, well, how do you, how do you guard, right? Like you're going to guard your mind. Mm -hmm. And here's the, here's the thing is you've got to constantly test what comes at you against the truth. And somebody told me once that, Hey, if I make a good decision, then a whole bunch of new doors open up that allow that even offer better choices. Right. And when I make a bad decision, a whole bunch of new doors open up that allow me to make worse choices. Hmm. And so what happens a lot of times is we get in a situation and all of a sudden we're made to feel like, we deserved it or we're, we're unworthy. And if we don't have a rock solid hold on what the truth is and we're getting that truth in and we don't constantly measure it against the truth, what we usually do is we measure it against the last thing that we experienced. Hmm. And then the choices get worse. Yeah. Right. And we spiral. And so that's why that sequence of, man, I got to choose the right input. I got to guard my mind and then I got to train it. Because it's very difficult. Uh, it takes a lot of awareness to catch yourself from going too deep into something unless you're just ingrained in the truth. So that, okay, the truth, let's stick on that word. And we're going to end with, uh, I'm going to end us on one right here because, you know, it's interesting. As we often talk, Tom, we have in these shows just from a personal growth standpoint that it's hard if not impossible to pour out, to give out what you do not have. So here we have people who were grew up bereft of love and affection and actually even further into given abuse. And so it would by proxy of that statement, feel like, gosh, how can they ever give out what they didn't get? Well, at some point they're going to have to get it. And I would say, as you mentioned the word truth, the root issue, I think it's right here. I'm going to let Autumn Borland tell us about it. She says, growing up, my parents provided a lot of love. Unfortunately, it took me until my late twenties or early thirties to really love myself. I believe this lack of self-love through my teenage years and most of my twenties made my internal dialogue with myself lean towards the negative. And oftentimes I felt judged by others. It's not good enough or not worthy of, uh, et cetera, changing my thought process and the way I allow myself to talk to me. I am no longer concerned with what I think someone may think of me. As long as I know I have good intentions, stay kind and try my best. I need to be concerned. I, I need, I need not be concerned with what others' opinions are of me. 
because it's probably true that they are dealing with their own insecurities as well. Just like you talked about, Tom, not too long ago, I saw a picture of a mother and her child. And it said to paraphrase, don't speak to yourself in a way you would not allow your kids to be spoken to that is, and forever will be a conscious effort. I practice practices for a lifetime of self-love and I choose that for myself. Um, there I think is the answer that we're looking for. For those of you who feel like I, I didn't get any of that. How do I get that? You're going to have to find that Tom, you and I, as, as brothers of faith would say that that comes from our, uh, our God and our creator. Um, but finding that self-love, how you talk to yourself, this is, you're at the heart of Zigglerdom right here with self-talk and folks, if you haven't, uh, if you look up, um, I don't know what episode it was that we did on self-talk. If you type in Zig Ziglar, uh, the Ziglar show self-talk, you'll probably find it. But if you go to Ziglar.com slash self-talk, you'll come to a page where you can download for free the Ziglar self-talk cards and you can go through, um, Where's Zig in the show? You can, I think I played the clip where he talked through them, but you can get the cards that uh, have come from Ziggler that you can actually use to begin your self-talk and change the way, as Autumn said, you speak to yourself um, because yeah, I don't think we can give out what we don't have within us. And that self-image is, I think where it starts, Tom. Absolutely. It does. You know, that reminds me of a story that dad used to tell. I can't remember where it is but it was about a, a young lady with just a beautiful operatic voice, incredibly gifted and a great future, a great career. So her parents got her uh, lessons with one of the greatest opera teachers in the world. And as happens in those situations, she fell in love with the teacher. Hmm. They got married much older than her. Mm -hmm. And within a few years, she quit singing and never sang. And the reason was all he could do was tell her where she was missing it. Right. So time goes by and I don't know whether they got divorced or if he died, she gets remarried. She'd never sang publicly, never sang in front of anybody. And her new husband caught her singing in the bathroom. And basically with tears, said, that's the most beautiful voice I've ever heard. And she started singing again and went on to a career. And so that's what happens is we, we, whatever voice is going into our head, whatever we're choosing to listen to or read, whatever that's telling us, mm -hmm. that's the most likely thing that we're going to say about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, that's why I said, we gotta, we gotta guard our mind and measure it against the truth. And then we've got to train our mind. So, the, and that's where the discernment, that's where we focus on what we can do better. Well, I think that's a great place to anchor this show right there. As we look at love and affection, how are we expressing it with folks that, uh, it could have been a place to start, but I guess we'll end there that it's going to start from what we have within us to give out, man, what a topic and, uh, what incredible sharing, uh, feels like we're sitting in church, Tom. Yeah. Amen. All right. <laughs> And all the people said, Amen. we'll see you next time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, I expect that the show has all of us considering how we are or are not effectively communicating love and affection to those around us. 
it's obviously a sensitive issue for, I think, most all of us. And I've been so much more aware since recording this show and just considering my own actions on this topic. Well, coming up in episode 751, leaders are learners. The key word here is learners, but let me clarify that word. The definition is to gain or acquire knowledge of or skill in something by study, experience, or being taught. So we hear a lot of things that we don't actually learn. I mean, if you've heard the health value of not eating fast food and eating more home cooked vegetables, but you're still eating fast food and your stove wouldn't recognize a real vegetable, then you just heard about it. You didn't learn it. So leaders are gaining knowledge and actually applying it to their life. This was the key habit that my guest Rick McDaniel shared here in our habits episode. Rick was my guest in episode 749, where he revealed personal styles in 12 categories of life. His book, You Got Style, I now have my family working through so we can better understand each other. I'm also going to do it with my close business associates. Rick is the founder and senior pastor of the Richmond Community Church in Richmond, Virginia, and highimpactchurch.tv. He's a regular contributor for foxnews.com and is a well-known speaker for Fortune 500 companies and faith audiences alike. You're going to gain much by walking through the seven spokes on the Ziegler Wheel of Life and hearing Rick's personal habits for success. Till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <laughs> 